The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box and the headlines this hour. Stocks in Asia higher as China delivers better than expected trade numbers for July, but imports from the U.S. fall again. On Wall Street, the Dow claws back most of the near 600-point drop, while the S&P 500 logs its biggest comeback in a year and a half. Global bond yields fall as the flight to safety continues, with the yield on the U.S. 10-year note touching its lowest level since October 2016. Oil rallies after a near 5% drop on a report Saudi Arabia is in talks with other producers to act on the price slide. Plus, earnings season continues, and we've got you covered. Don't miss the CEOs of Adidas, Zurich Insurance, and Orsted coming up. Another beautiful sunrise over London this morning, and we're going to focus on earnings very early on in the program. Deutsche Telekom just trickling through with figures. So let's get into them for you now. The company confirming its 2019 guidance. So that's a positive as we kick off the program. At least they are telling us that they are expecting to hit their target for full year 2019. In terms of the revenue line, we are bang in line with expectations from the company. Deutsche Telekom second quarter revenues in at 19.664 billion euros. The company average or the expectation from the analyst was 19.6 billion euros. So that's a, a confirmation, if you like, of the expected revenue line from the business. The uh, group also telling us uh, free cash flow coming in at 1.546 billion euros. The poll average was for 1.7 billion. So they are a little light on that free cash flow development number. The second quarter adjusted EBIT thereafter adjusting for leases in at 6.283 billion euros. The poll average was for 6.2 billion. So that's a quick look at the numbers that have come through so far from Deutsche Telekom. But I think the key underlying message from the company is a reconfirmation of the 2019 guidance. As you saw from the chart a moment ago, it hasn't been easy running for owners of the shares. Uh, If you look at that three-month chart, we're effectively below where we started on the three-month journey. If we can have a look at the 12 months very quickly, just to round you out. Telecom's an interesting space at the moment, possibly for the debt as well as the equity as markets are looking for blue chip defensives. I'm not sure necessarily that we've got a lot of people running to European blue chips at this point, given the concerns that the market has about the state of growth in Europe. But of course, your telecoms give you utility-like returns. And as we look at that uh, full year chart, you can see we are actually higher 
across the 12-month story, a modest 2.5% higher. I wonder whether telecom is a little bit less challenging these days from where we used to perceive them because of all the changes that are coming around 5G and potentially new revenue models. Less challenging. Less challenging. What about all that money, Karen, that they're going to have to spend as they roll out their 5G infrastructure while they wait to see if the customers bite as we potentially might be rolling into a slowdown in 2020? It's a well-known script where you've seen uh, the equipment sellers very much versed to the fact that there's a, a challenged amount of money that the telecoms group has to have to spend. So the likes of Huawei, Ericsson, Nokia work within that realm. So, And I think governments too, with the lower auction levels that uh, they go to market with. So I, I think it's changed. But for me, it's better than we were where we were for five years ago in telecoms. Well, I think it's all to play for. What I do think is encouraging, though, is that share price performance. But perhaps... From a contra perspective, it does suggest that there are those who are willing to own telecom stocks in Europe at Mm. this point, a part of the international marketplace that is largely unloved. But at least they can take comfort from the fact that for the second quarter, the numbers are in line this morning and a reconfirmation of guidance. I want to push on to one company uh, that's just out with numbers now, and that is ThyssenKrupp, the big German company. And it's been challenging for its journey in recent months, uh, enough so that there's been pressure on the CEO for a major restructure in key parts of the business. And I don't think the numbers today will help some of that narrative. Uh, alongside the numbers where you've seen a cut to the 2019 outlook, it is now expecting adjusted EBITDA of about 0.8 billion euros that is down from 1.1 to 1.2 billion previously seen. So another outlook cut, but at the same time, the company pushing forward with restructuring measures that have been demanded by investors. It says a leaner, simpler organizational structure will be implemented from 2020. It also uh, plans to carry out the IPO of its elevated division in the 2019-2020 fiscal year. I believe a number of private equity companies have been circling that business. It says on the note, it's also examining expressions of interest for the elevator and other divisions. So if the restructuring that it's now embarking upon proves unsuccessful or impossible at the three units, other strategic options will be examined. So it has put three businesses under review, springs and stabilizers, system engineering and heavy plate. So this all comes on the back of uh, numbers where you've seen some weakness in key parts of the business. I'll just break it down quickly. Q3 adjusted EBIT at material services down 49%. At Steel Europe, the adjusted EBIT, the same numbers down 99.6%. I mean, these are hefty reductions. At Industrial Solutions, you've got an adjusted EBIT loss. Uh, That has nearly halved, though, to 55 million euros. Components technology down 35%. I don't know how many more down numbers they're going to throw into the mix here. And it gives you an idea of how grim it has been at the company. Well, this company is under a huge amount of pressure with Elliott having taken a stake and the the fact that they're now looking at putting three more businesses up for review and doing more there. I think it's interesting to see that their elevator uh, elevator technology order intake was up in the quarter. This is obviously their star unit and they're on track to carry out an IPO or look at those expressions of interest. But this is, I mean, they are under a huge amount of pressure. We already know they're cutting thousands of jobs and this is a company that has been forced by an activist like we've seen across multiple companies in Germany. You know, the trouble with that elevator business is it has its ups and it has its downs. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but the point, the point is this. I mean, the steel business, as we know, in Europe has been challenged for some time. I don't know whether you saw the uh, Via Stalpine numbers yesterday, but what came through there that was 
what struck me that I was quite surprised about was just how much they talked about inflation in raw material prices. And that just struck a note for me because the underlying message that we've conveyed through this market narrative through recent years has been one of increasing deflation or disinflationary right. trends. And on a day and listen up if you are listening to the podcast on this, because we're going to spend a lot of time on this this morning. Why are bond yields coming down at a time when we see some positive trends in core inflation numbers and in raw materials prices? And I think the message coming out of the steel sector at the moment is one where they see weakness in demand going forward, but some underlying pricing pressures. And that narrative, on the one hand, Okay, the slowdown might fit in with the weaker bond yield story, but the rising core and underlying raw materials costs actually doesn't sit well with what's going on with bond yields unless we're heading for a recession. What you're talking about is a challenging backdrop, and I think what you had in the past was an endeavour by this company to consolidate more assets with Tata Steel, so to shore up that steel business. And I think the strategy is the same for a number of corporates. You've got to get bigger to make your presence and your dominance better in this type of challenging environment, or you have to shrink. And the ability to try and expand by consolidating assets didn't work because it was blocked by a regulator. Now we're back to basics of stripping out parts of the business, which has been the other measure demanded by investors. So long live the conglomerate structure. Absolutely. You're going to talk about the markets. Yeah, why not? Because it was a fairly roller coaster session on markets yesterday, particularly for the Dow and S&P. And you could see where we closed up shop, uh, mixed fortunes. And if you look at the percentage levels, it doesn't look like there was much to see in session. The very opposite, though, the S&P saw its biggest uh, one-day comeback or intraday comeback to break-even levels since December last year. Remember the height of all that selling we had as markets were extremely volatile. It took us right back to that session, the sort of action that we saw in the day. At one point at the lows of the day, the S&P was down 1.95%. So minus 1.95% to the gains that we had in session of almost uh, a tenth of a percent. So a significant turnaround that took place. If we look at uh, some of the components, 68% of the S&P 500 components rebounded by 2% or more off their lows. Single names, Kroger was the stock leading the way, gaining more than 9% from its lows. So significant uh, change intraday, the, the start of the session, very different to the end of the session. I want to take you to Treasuries. Uh, Jeff was mentioning some of the very low yields out there, very much a dominant feature of the sessions that we saw yesterday. In uh, one, at 1.57 and 10 years, 30 years, all hit fresh lows, right back to December 2016 territory. Uh, the yields this morning, 1.72% is what we're looking at, the 10 year. Elsewhere, US banks, another important component of this story as investors try and guess what the Fed might be doing. You can see all in the red uh, falls, uh, fairly significant uh, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan uh, all down more than 2%. Goldman Sachs, a little bit more contained. Don't forget that this was one of the stronger movers to the upside in the previous session, Juliana. We also saw a big plunge in oil prices yesterday, right alongside the weakness that we saw early in the day in equities. Now this morning, we are seeing a bit of a bounce for WTI and Brent, uh, both up about 3%. 
percent. This comes as uh, amid reports that Saudi is in talks with other producers to potentially act on the price slide that we've seen. Gold, meanwhile, uh, stabilizing a bit in the latest trade, but above that $1,500 per ounce mark. Yesterday, we saw gold rally 2.4 percent, hitting a fresh, uh, fresh six-year high. So gold continues to see a very strong bid in this volatility we're seeing across global markets. Let's take a look at dollar crosses. Yesterday, the dollar index closed pretty much flat on the day. Now this morning, we're seeing a little bit of weakness come through. We're seeing sterling rally about 0.19% versus the dollar. The euro also up about 0.1%. And we're continuing to see a strong bid for the yen, which has been right alongside gold, one of the key beneficiaries of this risk-off trade. And currently, the dollar is down about 0.11% versus the yen uh, on the day. Now let's take a look at Asian markets, where, uh, as you heard there in the headlines, we have seen a bounce come through. The Shanghai Composite uh, up nearly 1% this morning. The Shenzhen up nearly 1% as well. So some real stabilization coming through. We did get some fresh data out of China. Uh, we saw the China, China exports and imports come in better than expected. Exports unexpectedly rose 3.3% in July, while imports fell by less than expected. So some uh, stabilization, a bit of a rebound coming through in the Asian markets. Guys? Excellent. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Juliana, for that. Uh, Chinese exports in July surprised to the upside, growing at their fastest pace since March. Exports rose 3.3% from a year earlier, despite expectations for a 2% decline. Imports fell by 5.6%. But that also beat forecasts. Meanwhile, China's central bank has set the yuan midpoint weaker than the key seven per dollar level. However, that was stronger than some in the market may have expected. It's the first time since 2008 that the reference rate was weaker than seven. Let's get out to Eunice, who joins us now from Beijing. So two issues here, Eunice, maybe to get you to address. One, um, what is the PBOC's strategy at this point we seem to be shifting around a lot on this setting. And two, just walk us through the trade data implications, particularly on the weaker import side. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Jeff, so the trade data did surprise to the upside, and it appears that the glo- that global demand is holding steady, even though the exports to the United States shrank. So uh, that shows that uh, President Trump's tariffs are having an impact, but that overall things are looking relatively steady. A lot of analysts, though, think that the imports are going to continue to suffer, um, even though they suffered less than what a lot of people had expected. Uh, for August, there's been a lot of talk. Um, I also have had conversations with manufacturers in the South who um, who are rushing orders now to the United States because retailers have been placing uh, these orders, asking for more shipments ahead of the September 1st tariff deadline when we're going to see the next round of tariffs kick in. So separate to that, um, you had um, talked about the central bank. So the PBOC had uh, set the value of uh, the start of trade. This is a, a very common practice, something that the, the government here does every single day in order to, to try to continue to influence the value of the currency. And today, it surprised people by a bit because this is the first time that the central bank set the value or what's called the midpoint 
weaker than the psychologically important seven mark. So um, it's the first time since 2008. So there was a lot of talk about it. But in terms of the government's overall strategy, it appears that Beijing still is very reluctant to um, have people believe that the currency is going to be used as a weapon in the trade war with the United States. So we haven't had any official commentary yet, but just in the past hour or so, the Global Times, which is a Communist Party paper, quoted a researcher who is very closely linked with the Chinese Commerce Ministry as saying, further depreciation will not be very fast to the 7.1 or 7.2 level. It will not take long before the rate returns to below seven. So I think that's an indication um, of what we've been hearing for the past several days. In other words, that the movements of the yuan are going to be very closely monitored and won't be destabilizing. Eunice, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, meantime, we're on the set this morning. Diana Choi Lever, who is the chief economist at Enodo Economics, and also James Athey with us, senior investment strategist at Aberdeen Standard Investments. Diana, we need to kick it off because it's been a fast moving story around China with the promise or threat of more tariffs in September, the currency manipulator label, and big movements in the yuan in recent days. What do you make of the developments? Certainly, this all-encompassing uh, Zino-US geopolitical confrontation is intensifying. It's not just about the trade war, it's about the tech war and potentially even military confrontation. But that's further down the line. Focusing on the trade war, certainly very worrying developments um, and uh, unexpected because it looked like at the Osaka G20 meeting that Xi Jinping and uh, Donald Trump reached a truce. That's now up in the air and markets are unsettled with a reason, for a reason. James, what's your interpretation on how significant China is here for markets? I mean, it's hugely significant. It's hugely significant from a sentiment perspective, which, you know, first and foremost is where we're seeing the impact of this recent escalation. Obviously, we've not had chance for these tariffs to even be put in place, let alone have an economic impact. Yet we've seen obviously some fairly volatile moves in markets. But it is my opinion that actually underneath all of this, underneath these trade tensions, there is, a, you know, there has been a long lasting economic impact of China's domestic policy choices, which is to say that the pace of growth is slowing and has been consistently for a number of years now, but actually the nature of Chinese growth and the way in which it plugs into the global economy is also changing. And that's been more dramatic in the last 12 to 18 months. Ben, that's and I want to come, come back to a point that, that you made about the military angle here. And I see in, in your latest research, you said the ultimate red line for China is Taiwan. So how does Taiwan fit into the U.S.-China narrative? It is the ultimate red line and uh, China will obviously not go to war over trade confrontation or Huawei. But should there be actions on the side of Washington or Taiwan itself that China judges cross that red line, that's the only issue that can draw them into a military conflict um, uh, in the foreseeable future which is obviously from the perspective of markets uh, and <laughs> generally <laughs> something we don't want to happen. But it has actually become a scenario that I'm now attaching a higher probability than I was three or four months ago. 
So we've got a couple of things running here. One is this issue with China. The other is how the bond market is reacting. And obviously there is a relationship between the two, as you've pointed out here, James. Yeah. My question would be, as, as we've all rushed to our market almanac to find out when we last saw yields on the 10-year Treasury at this level, because it is the risk-free rate that we benchmark to, yeah. what does that 1.59% that we drop to actually tell us about future expectations both in fixed income and equities? Well, unfortunately, signals from all markets over the last 10 years have been distorted beyond anything that we would normally recognise as being a clean economic signal. So first and foremost, we have to just be careful about reading too much into pure economic signals. There are structural forces at work and there are regulatory forces at work. We know that banks have to hold more capital in general and specifically more capital via very safe assets like um, US Treasuries. So, you know, there is some distortion of an economic signal there. But what we've seen recently is that economic data everywhere has been slowing. Inflation has been slowing and uh, risk assets have been uh, somewhat buoyed, shall we say, by forces which are starting to wane as well. And the combination of those is a classic case for why you'd want to buy the risk-free rate. The other thing to do, we have to be very careful, I want to talk about the bond maths very quickly, is be careful about what we read into the, the sort of nominal value of these yields without considering where cash rates are. Central banks have taken cash rates to incredibly low levels everywhere. And of course, that naturally means that yields will be lower across the yield curve. And in certain markets like Germany, where there is a huge scarcity and still a stock of bonds set on the ECB's balance sheet, you know, it's, it's completely normal, sensible, I should say, um, that yields are as low as they are in that environment. OK, we'll come back to this because I'm not sure that the stock market agrees with your analysis about the risks that lie out there. But you've been defensible here. So we'll talk about your defensive positioning. And Diana, will come back to you and we'll talk a little bit more about what the numbers actually mean for us. Um, stay with us here on Sportbox. We will see you the other side of the break as we try to figure out exactly what the message is from the bond market this hour. We'll see you in just a moment. CNBC Signature Event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Waking up to Scorebox this morning, you can see a beautiful view there of London early this morning. Now, the U.S. 30-year Treasury yields are approaching an all-time low from 2016, while 10-year yields are falling further below three-month rates, which is typically considered a recession indicator. Coming back to a conversation around the sector with Diana Choileva, who is a chief economist at Enodo Economics, and James Athey, the senior investment strategist at Aberdeen Standard Investments. Yields are very much a, a dominant thought process for investors and what they're signaling for, for many investors. If you look at where Fed funds rates are now priced, 100% probability that the Fed will ease in September. 24% chance that that will be a half a point cut, so 50 basis points. What do you make of the way market is shaping its expectations now? 
The market sees that it can influence the Federal Reserve and it's got a taste of something it likes. I mean, it's sort of reminiscent. I think it was James Carville back in the early 90s that said if he came back, you know, for a second go at life, he'd want to come back as the bond market because you can intimidate everybody. And it very much seems to be that we're in that place at the moment. Essentially, the Fed disappointed quote-unquote markets in July because while it did ease policy the, the communication was confusing but seemed to suggest that there wasn't really much more coming down the pipe the problem is that that just very quickly becomes self-defeating when the Fed has outsourced the stance of its policy and the measure of its policy to financial markets the circularity is quite obvious and clear financial conditions are a combination of market-based variables so if the Fed disappoints markets for whatever reason and markets react adversely, then that tightens financial conditions and the Fed ultimately has to respond. And that's the game we're now playing. And Diana, part of the problem here is that markets are looking for the Federal Reserve to be the Federal Reserve of the world and they're concerned specifically about China. When you read in between the lines of all the date reports coming out of the mainland market, how dire a situation is China in? Because I know you've got some very strong calls against Chinese equities. Well, actually... Um the stimulus measures that they started uh, slowly uh, at first injecting in the middle of last year and then intensified uh, as the trade war intensified have begun to bear fruit. So on our estimates in the second quarter growth revived. It wasn't a fantastic achievement, but it certainly improved on what was uh, much weaker performance beforehand. But going forward, China still has to deal with its uh, huge debt problem. And it has been deleveraging for now a year and a half. There is more to do on that front. The trade war has had a significant impact on business confidence and importantly, the confidence of urban consumers. So consumer spending is not doing as well as it was in the good times of 1617 when we had the rebalancing. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.